researchers are increasingly recognizing that sedentary behaviors are associated with adverse health outcomes, independent of physical activity. In other words, even among people who exercise, being sedentary for long periods is associated with an increase in metabolic risk factors, functional limitations, and mortality. But another factor that comes into play is frailty. Most of the research on sedentary behaviors has focused on children and younger adults, but the most sedentary groups are middle-aged and older adults. To date, there haven't been any studies looking at whether the effect of sedentary behaviors on adverse health outcomes differs across levels of frailty. I'm Dr. Matthew Standrup, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with two authors of a study published in the CMAJ that looks at the association between sedentary time and mortality across levels of frailty. Dr. Olga Theu is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Dalhousie University and geriatric medicine scientist for the Nova Scotia Health Authority. Dr. Kenneth Rockwood is a staff physician and professor of geriatric medicine and neurology at Dalhousie University and a CIHR researcher. Dr. Theo and Dr. Rockwood are joining me from Halifax. Hello. 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 It's great to have you with us uh, today. Now, full disclosure, I have to admit that while we're doing this interview, I am indeed sitting down right now, although given what we're about to talk about, I am a little bit nervous about, you know, whether I'm taking some risks doing that. So we'll we'll hear about how nervous I should be as we go through this. Let's start with uh, hearing about why you wanted to do this study. Dr. Theo, can you tell us? Yes. So we started the study with the idea of we know that is the benefits of physical activity exercise, and by physical activity, I mean moderate, at least moderate intensity activity. It's well established. We know being physically inactive is bad for you. But what is emerging as a newer concept, I would say the last decade, is the term of sedentary behavior, which is basically everything we do while we're awake and we're sitting down or laying down, things like being in our car, uh, working in our computer while sitting down, reading a book in the couch, watching TV, things like that. And there is a lot of studies around sedentary behavior is bad for our health, even if people exercise. And there's a lot of media headlines around this topic. You might have heard the topic of sitting is the new smoking and things like that. So our group was interesting to examine, well, is it bad for everybody? Is it bad similarly for someone who is 70-year-old and sitting in a nursing home versus a 70-year-old person doing marathons? So we wanted to capture how the heterogeneity in health may have an impact on that. And this heterogeneity was actually captured by a group uh, with the term of frailty. So we want to see how frailty may have an impact of how sedentary behavior has an impact on uh, health. So what that was what started uh, coming up as a... Um, the idea of this project. And while we're working on the analysis of our results, actually, a new paper came out last year from Lancet establishing that actually exercise, doing moderate or vigorous physical activity, eliminates the risk associated with sanitary time. So that was, again, our project was a follow-up of that, trying to see, well, is it the same for all people across all levels of frailty? So let's get into uh, how you went about doing this study. Tell us what data you used, what kind of patients that you included, and, and what analyses you did to answer this question. 
So for our project, we use the data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which is actually a US, a US survey. And we included specifically this data set. It's a big data set, which includes accelerometer data, which is objectively measured physical activity data. And we can talk further a little bit about why it's important to use objective measure versus self-report. But this was one of the biggest surveys right now that has accelerometer data and also has the ability to link these assessments with mortality data. So similarly, for example, in Canada, we have the Canadian Health Measure Survey, which is also a very big sample of accelerometer data. However, we don't have mortality data linked there. So we had to use with the U.S. data for this reason. And we use the specific ways from 2003-2004 and 2005-2006, which uh, had actually the accelerometer data. Uh, the other waves actually used self-report data. Yeah, Statistics Canada has taken the stance that it doesn't want to link the Canadian Health Measures Survey to mortality data because mortality in the near term is small. But I think the American strategy has been more sensible, which is to say the risk of mortality may be small in the first year or two, but give that cohort time, they'll get over that. So there is real merit to being able to engage prospectively in longer term follow-up from this information, even though obviously there are confounding effects about the passage of time and change in health status in the interval. So this is one instance in which uh, it would be good if uh, Statistics Canada could revisit some of the decisions that they made a few years ago um, under new management, if you will. Yeah, Dr. Rockwood, that's an interesting point, and it's it's good to hear an explanation as to why you had to go to a, a U.S. data source that's about a decade old to be able to have the kind of data you needed to answer this question. So that makes sense. I, I want to get a little bit of clarification about the main variables in this study, which are frailty and sedentary behavior. Could you just tell us in a bit more detail how you actually measured each of those in this study? So I can explain with sedentary behavior, and Dr. Rockwood can explain further on frailty. So in our study, we only included people 50 years or older. And for, I said from two waves of the NHANES data set, uh, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, and mortality was followed up in 2011. So we have five to eight years mortality follow-up. And sedentary behavior in this baseline assessment was used with an accelerometer called Actigraph, which is basically a physical activity monitor. People weighed on their waist continuously while they're awake. They only take it out if they will be swimming or bathing it's, since it's not waterproof. At least that device was not waterproof. So this accelerometer is uh, continuously monitor your intensity or estimates the intensity of your physical activity. So it can tell well, how long each person spends on sedentary behaviors, how long they spend on light activity, how long they spend on moderate or vigorous activity. And in this way, we can classify whether also people meet the physical activity guidelines or not. And the physical activity guidelines, the way that's in Canada right now and pretty much similar worldwide for adults, is doing at least two and a half hours of moderate vigorous activity per week. And they need to engage for at least 10 minutes every time. So doing that, we classified whether people follow the guidelines or not and how many hours they spend per day sedentary. So we looked at frailty uh, in terms of 
a frailty index. And what a frailty index does is it counts the number of things that people have wrong with them and then divides by the number of things that were counted. So in NHANES, we had access to 46 items which qualify as health deficits, which briefly means that they're um, that they're bad for you and that they increase with age. So for example, say if left-handedness were bad for you, and as far as I know, it's not, but were that to be so, we wouldn't count it because it doesn't change with age. Um, and in the same way, we don't we don't count gray hair or even white hair, says the white-haired man, uh, because even though that becomes more common with age, as far as we can tell, it's not actually bad for you. Other than that, we don't count things which are very, very rare. We sort of group them into um, uh, similar categories. So, for example, we wouldn't count a particular hematological malignancy on its own. We'd probably put those in with other hematological malignancies. In fact, we'd probably put all those in with cancer and count that as a thing, because otherwise it's, it's too rare to be informative. And likewise, we wouldn't count something that was very, very common. Uh, so roughly 80% of the people have it by age 80, because all that does for a frailty index is put the number in the numerator and the denominator. So, so with those very simple rules, is it around and is it bad for you? We count those things. So our view about what frailty is, is the more things people have wrong with them, the more likely they are to be frail. And interestingly, with the NHANES data, we're able to look at that across the life course, not as something that suddenly appears at the age of 65. The determinants of frailty seem to reach a long way back. So uh, that was how we measured frailty. You've got this large longitudinal cohort that's population representative. And in this cohort, you have a validated measure of frailty and a validated measure of sedentary behavior. And these are your, your exposures that you're interested in. And your outcome in this study is mortality. So let's come to the key finding of your study. Did level of frailty alter the effect of sedentary behaviors on mortality? So it's yes and no, as these things are usually. So if people have enough moderate physical activity, if people follow the guidelines or exercise, let's keep it simple. Level of frailty doesn't have an effect because sanitary behavior does not have, it's not associated with mortality. But for people who are physically inactive, frailty does have an effect on uh, the relationship between sanitary and mortality. What we found is that for people who are extremely healthy, and that is... We have a frailty index score below 0.1, which is, let's say, from the 46 items is less than five problems. So if you have less than five problems out of the 46, which is usually not very common for middle-aged and older adults. So for those people, sedentary time was not associated with mortality. For people who have above that level, sedentary time was actually associated with mortality. Keep a note, though, that for this study and with a lot of population-based studies, we didn't have very high levels of frailty. So our last group was a 0.3 and above, which we would classify them around moderate frailty. We didn't have enough people with severe frailty, especially severe frailty and people who exercise. So our findings is, I would say, up to the moderate frail level. We need more studies around how severe, what happens on severe frail people.
Okay, so I just want to translate what your findings mean for middle-aged and older Canadians in, in practical terms here. Now, the most reassuring part of your study, for, from my perspective, is the fact that you've defined middle age as beginning at 50, which is very reassuring to me. So clearly, I am too young for your findings to, to reflect on me. But if we project a few years in the future, it becomes more relevant. So let's think about that. Now, as a journal editor, I'm sitting in front of my computer for long hours and working on my manuscripts, and I've been sort of worried about that. Based on your findings, uh, can I now say, oh, what a relief. I don't have to worry about all my sedentary work because I'm not frail. Uh, it's not going to impact my mortality. Is that a correct interpretation of your findings? So in respect to short term, well, five to eight years mortality, it might not be the same for other outcomes. So in respect to mortality specific, if you are extremely healthy or you exercise, you might not have to worry as much about your sanitary time. Which is good news. And, and indeed, I do exercise. But I noted in your study that in the people who had the lowest level of frailty, in other words, who were the least frail, even physical activity didn't seem to relate to death. Am I interpreting that correctly? It was just frailty, not sedentariness or physical activity. So it looks like um, the sedentary behavior component is uh, a bit insensitive in and of itself. And the things that the frailty index would capture would be uh, other things which traditionally are associated uh, with mortality in reasonably um, fit people. So things like hypertension, for example. Uh, and then it's later complications. So the caution that we'd urge is because mortality, even though it's advantageous in being uh, clinically relevant, uh, non-arbitrary and dichotomous, uh, it's still a crude measure. And uh, particularly for that short a time frame, five to eight years. So, so sedentary behavior will catch up with people over time it tends to do so in ways that manifest otherwise as illness and therefore gets caught up in the frailty index count. That's how we would um, uh, interpret that. So, so it certainly wouldn't be an endorsement of sedentary behavior if you're otherwise not ill yet. We do know the frailty index increases um, with time. And so older people on average will have a higher frailty index than others will. And we do know that there is both attenuation in the increase in the frailty index in people who exercise, but also protection, which is conferred, so that for any level of the frailty index, exercise is good for people. So, so, so we wouldn't want this to be understood as being an endorsement of sedentary behavior. Okay, so I shouldn't give up my long distance running. That's an important caveat. So <laughs> let's look at the other end of the, the spectrum. You studied the patients who are frail, and what you seem to find in this group is that sedentariness has an important effect, and it has an effect independent of how much physical activity they did, although that was also somewhat protective. But even so, they can't exercise their way out of the effect of sedentariness on mortality. Is that a correct interpretation? Yes. And even though we're getting a hint with their data, and that's, again, we don't have enough severe frail people to make a conclusion about that. But from what we've seen with these data sets, and that's a hypothesis for us to test, is that in severe frail people, exercise might not eliminate the effect. 
So it's possible that even if people exercise a severe frail, the sedentary behavior might still be significant. Now, this is still not what our data has shown because we didn't have enough severe frail people, but that's the hypothesis I got from what we've seen so far. Yeah, the other caveat, of course, is that um, the frailer someone is, the more the sedentary behavior may reflect their frailty rather than be causative. So there's lo lots of reasons to be cautious as we move into higher levels of frailty in terms of understanding how these things might work. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because if you think about it, frailty and sedentariness are not independent of one another, especially as you uh, become more and more frail. People uh, have disabilities, they have physical illnesses, chronic pain, and there's not much they can do about those things often. So what what message does this send to frail patients and those of us who, who care for them in terms of what we can do to reduce their mortality. Is it possible to, you know, change this risk for someone who's frail? So in my ordinary clinical practice, that seems to be the case. So we have a rich experience, for example, in outpatient clinics or also in our day hospital, where quite routinely uh, people enter a day hospital program over uh, an eight to 12 week period with impaired mobility and they leave it with their mobility better. It might still be impaired, but it's better than they were uh, before they started. And the exercise they do um, uh, as part of the day hospital program turns out to be an important part of that intervention. So, so it, it's clearly the case that clinically you can improve outcomes in virtue of um, better physical activity. Whether that would meet a mortality criterion, that's hard to say and largely unknown in all the areas of a geriatric intervention day hospital turns out to be one of the more difficult ones to uh, detect mortality impact with. And you'd also have to disentangle it from all the other things you do, such as stopping medications that people don't need. So so it's it's a bit complicated from that standpoint, but but it's it would be unremarkable to anyone uh, who deals with day hospitals or older people that in ordinary practice, people can certainly feel better as a consequence of uh, taking up activity programs. All right, now all research studies have limitations. What do you see as the key limitations of your study? Well, there's a few. Um, one always is generalizability. People who take part in studies tend not to be as ill as people who don't. They seem to be more well-motivated to start with. And even within this, there's a, a subsample again of the people who uh, were able to um, take up and not lose uh, their uh, uh, their accelerometers. So there's always a generalizability issue. Um, a second thing is that though we had objective data in relation to the accelerometers, uh, we rely on self-report data in relation to the frailty index. Um, we know that from other work we've done, including um, very recent work from the same survey, that uh, the more objective data you use, the uh, higher the frailty index score. So this turns out to be a conservative estimate of the degree of frailty that people had. And though the CMAJ has a broad reach from a Canadian standpoint, we used American data and not Canadian. So, so there are things like this which limit particularly the generalizability of our findings. And also, since this was an observational study, so we're limited of what we discussed earlier about the relationship between frailty and sedentary behaviors, 
to get more information about what we need to do about sanitary behaviors. We need more randomized clinical trials to tell whether, let's say, we're getting people across different levels of frailty and we were reducing their sanitary time, what this may have an impact on their health. And another thing too, with accelerometers, even though it's it's a strength and limitation, accelerometers are very good measures, especially for sanitary time, because if I ask anybody right now, have you exercised the last week? I think we're pretty much good at remembering whether we exercise or not. If I ask someone how long you spend watching TV, sitting on your computer, overall, how much you spend sitting or laying down, it's much harder to estimate. So we're losing a lot much more accuracy, especially as we're going in with older people with more cognitive impairments. So it's really one of the only ways we can go to measure sanitary time. It becomes uh, the accelerometers. However, because there are physical activity monitors that you wear on your waist for during your waking hours, it becomes an issue of the people who are actually going to be more likely to not use them or not use them properly are going to be the frailest. So we do exclude the severe frail people again through this process. If I could make one other point, I mean, everything that Dr. Deo says is indubitably the case. Even so, uh, I think that the older I get, the less concerned I am about the absence of the controlled trials when trying to make inferences about frail older adults. And that's just because there's a very clear history that frail patients tend to be excluded from trials. Uh, and so a lot of the information that we would imagine we'd have on the basis of trials is really unrealistic. And if we would only deal with uh, information on trials before we'd accept it as evidence, we would have a bias against, ironically, some of the largest consumers of healthcare. So I you know, I, I take the point that trials data would be better, but, you know, if we had bacon, we could have bacon and eggs if we had eggs. So I, I think it's it's important that we work with what we've got. I, I, I think we see this in stark relief um, in relation to uh, the sorts of things which count as evidence for hospitalized patients. So there's a massive amount of work that goes on, often in ways that are not as well organized as they might be, under the rubric of quality assurance or quality improvement, and that takes all comers. And then we try and look at how we imagine trials data might work in a highly, highly selected group of patients in whom frail elderly patients typically are systematically excluded. So I think it's a point worth considering, although it gets short shrift amongst the checklist-wielding Cochrane groups, uh, it's a point worth considering about the value of aggregated representative data. Something that CMAJ likes to publish a lot of. We do indeed see the value of it. So with all of that as, as context, where do you plan to take this area of research next then? What we're interesting to look further is don't just look on all-cause mortality, but focus a little bit more on cardiovascular cause mortality. And another area where we're interesting with this, the same data set is the importance of break sanitary time. So let's say if your goal is to reduce an hour per day your sanitary time, there's two ways, let's say. is just try to go for a walk for an hour or try to get up every hour for like a couple minutes. So there's a lot of research around the, more, the frequency of your breaks in sanitary time, which shows that it's possible that more frequent breaks are actually more beneficial, even if the total duration of reduction is similar. So we're interested a little bit more to examine this 
whether these breaks might be different for different levels of frailty. And uh, we're also doing some more studies with the, our hospital. We're interested on the concept of sanitary behaviors within the hospital. And there is a long literature around the whole effect of bed rest. So we're trying to see what we can do around it. Especially I find that, and we would like to emphasize with this paper, is that sometimes the physical activity guidelines, the way they are, the 150 minutes, two and a half hours, can be scary messages a little bit about frailer people. So we think that maybe sedentary behavior reduction is a good first step, that it's simple of don't focus so much on exercise in the beginning. It focuses more about how you can reduce your sedentary time. Things like get up while you're sitting, working, try to get up every couple hours, stand for a couple minutes, or when you, instead of taking the, uh, the elevators, take the stairs, simple things like that might be more feasible for some frailer people. And that's where we start. We want to go to the exercise point because there's some benefits with exercise that most likely sedentary behavior reduction will not give you. But that's a good first step that makes people most likely go to the exercise component too. One other thing that uh, we're interested in here, our group has done a lot of work in terms of looking at uh, frailty in relation to aging and possibly the frailty index as, if you will, a measure of biological age. And we're significantly able to expand that through the use of um, the more laboratory data and items like that. And we think that this uh, may allow us to look further at exercise in the context of other interventions that, um, in effect, might reduce the rate of aging. So, so I think that there's a lot to be gained from this, particularly where unlike the Canadian Health Measures Survey, which has a lot of uh, laboratory and like data as well, there's actually a link to mortality data here. So it seems to me that this may be a very good resource uh, to tackle uh, some big questions like the relationship between physical activity and aging, the relationship between physical activity, uh, social vulnerability, and aging. So we have a lot to look forward to in terms of future developments, but uh, for the meantime, your work seems to have added an important nuance to our understanding of the relationship between sedentary behavior and mortality. And I thank you both for joining us today to explain it all to us. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. I've been speaking with Olga Theyu, Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at Dalhousie University and Geriatric Medicine Scientist for the Nova Scotia Health Authority, and Kenneth Rockwood, Staff Physician and Professor of Geriatric Medicine and Neurology at Dalhousie University and a CIHR researcher. To read the research article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our podcasts at CMAJ, please leave us a rating on iTunes or give us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels.